We hope you enjoyed this message from Pastor Jordan Smith, recorded at Equippers Church, Dunedin. For more information, please visit equipperschurch.com. Awesome. Very good. Very good. Ah, I can see some people now. Very good. Very good. Well, it's exciting. We were at Equippers Church in Timaru this morning. Me and Uncle Dave, Pastor Dave, Pastor Dave. It was awesome. It was awesome. There are 100, 106 people in church this morning. It's pretty exciting. And uh, yeah, there's plenty more not in church, so Dave's got work to do, but uh, it's good. But it's exciting. And I was saying this morning uh, uh, to, the, to, the, to the crew in Timaru, See what I did there? But anyway, I was talking to them, and I was talking about uh, the Equipers Church logo, uh, and I was in the group that designed the original one. Very similar to the current one, although someone else got paid money to italicize what we'd already done. Uh, and uh, But we'd already made a, a really good, straight, nice, tidy one. But anyhow, uh, the, uh, the it's got a little house in the box. How many of you know that? There's a house in a box. Uh, it's actually an arrow. I've had to explain this more than one time across the last 15 years, but it's an arrow not a house in a box it's not a we don't do it's not like play school uh and uh but that but that actually we we know that the whole point of church the whole point of church is that we recognize the fact that God chose us and called us and that he wants to fashion us into something that God makes us into something like an arrow. God's not, so God's not, when, when, like God's not making like uh, garden gnomes, like God's not making you into a garden gnome. Like we, what God does in you is for something. Do you mean like you're not like, like a Royal Dalton gravy thing that sits on a mantelpiece. You're, you're an arrow and, and you don't build arrows for any other reason than to kill somebody else. Or something else, right? An arrow has the purpose of going from one point to another point and bringing destruction to enemies, right? That's, that's the picture of the arrow when we read in Isaiah about God fashioning us in His hand and hiding us in His quiver. That that's what God's doing when we gather in church, that we gather in our small groups, when we pray, when we believe together, that God's not just, God, we're not here to be a good church. That's not what we're, we're here to be an amazing group of arrows, Right, that actually can serve a purpose. Like for me, that's inspiring. I'm not inspired about being a good Christian. Couple of reasons, I'm not good at it. Secondly, what's the point? What's the point? Like I want to be the thing God made me to be to do the thing God made me to do. I don't want to just be a thing, like a stereotypical thing of something or other to meet a standard. No, I want to meet the standard of whatever an arrow needs to be to be the pur- to meet the purposes of God. That's, I think it's an exciting thing to be part of. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, you know, we could be we could just join a gym, use up our Sundays, right? Like you, you could use up. There's so many ways you can use up your Sunday. Like when I get up in, uh, for packing in Wellington, you're sort of up at whatever time and you're driving through town at quarter to six or whatever. You, there's heaps of people out. People putting their boats in the water to go fishing. There's people training for triathlons. There's old ladies walking dogs. Everyone is doing what they feel like they should be doing. It's just that we feel like we should be putting ourselves in a place where God can fashion us into what He's called us to be. This is just our favourite hobby. That's why we're doing it, right? Because God's doing something great in us. Amen. Very good. Why don't you give the amazing Pastor Dave a huge round of applause? It's nice to be here with you, Dave, because whenever I'm here, I expect to see Dave here because uh, when I was a younger person, Dave was always here leading the worship, uh, throwing it down, country hoedown start. No, 
not, it's not really, Dave. Uh, yeah, so it's good. It's good. Anyway, um, I wanted to talk uh, briefly. I do. I do need to catch the airplane. Um, and so I'll hand, what I'll do is I'll just preach away, and then I'll hand back to Pastor Will at whenever I need to go, and he can um, uh, wrap it up. Because I really believe God wants to actually do something. Uh, every time we gather, God wants to do something. You know, I, like um, I want to teach you some stuff. I want to. I actually want to affect how you think a little bit. Uh, but I, more than anything, I just want to get in your heads a little bit and then allow the Holy Spirit to do some do something uh, in you. And uh, you know, people have asked me this quite recently, uh, and they've asked me this a lot. They say because I do what I do for a living is public speaking now in a, in a variety of settings. I talk to strangers. I talk in churches. I talk at business group meetings. I, I talk to uh, you know business owners. I talked to the Wanganui Chamber of Commerce the other day, like just going places and doing talking. And people say, oh, do you get nervous? And usually what I do is when people ask me if I get nervous at doing public speaking, I normally say that I do, but I'm lying. I'm just, I'm just trying to fit in with everybody else. Because um, everyone talks about how nerve-wracking it is to do public speaking. I don't get nervous at all. I actually really enjoy it. There's a few reasons. The, the number one reason I really enjoy public speaking is I, I actually enjoy being the centre of attention. Uh, I think it's the right thing for people to look at me, listen to what I'm saying, and laugh at the right moments. It sort of feels right. It feels like the universe has come back into line. Uh, people are listening to me, right? You know, the rest of the time I'm shouting and no one's paying attention. But uh, when I get the chance to do public speaking, I feel like, yeah, this is the right thing. Yeah. I'm made for this, right? This is how it's supposed to be. So I don't get nervous at all. And the other reason I don't get nervous is not, not only do I just love being the center of attention, I've done a series of dangerous jobs throughout my life, so I don't get nervous public speaking because how bad could it be? I've done, like, I've done a lot of really dangerous jobs. My first job was a furniture removalist. Oh, yeah, I was 17. How many know every job's dangerous when you're 17? Because you are an idiot and you're working with grown men. I can remember when I was teaching, one of the students was not doing well at school. We encouraged him to go and get a trade, so he got a job as a, like, working at a panel beaters. But he was an idiot as well, because he was 17. By definition, idiot, right? So, he, And what he found was dangerous job, because every time he did something stupid, or every time he opened his mouth, something stupid fell out. And the tradesman threw tools at him when that happened, right? It's a dangerous job. How many people have been seven, a 17-year-old man? Right? How many people had people throw tools at you? It's a dangerous thing. I say to my 13-year-old son who's training to be a stupid 17-year-old, he's well on the way. Like I say to him all the time, I say to him this, you're doing that thing again. Your mouth is opening and crap is falling out. Shut your mouth, right? Like, and I'm, I'm doing this for his benefit because one day his mother will kill him because of something that fell out of his mouth that was open. I just say, keep your mouth closed. Well, if, I'm, if, if you're at home and mum's at home and I'm not at home, keep your mouth closed. Right? Chrissy said to me at one point when he was seven, she said this, when is he going to stop trying to make everyone laugh? I said, that, that's what I said. And, that, and she realised that that's not going to stop. Now, dangerous jobs. So we've all had dangerous jobs. Anyone had a dangerous job? I know Pastor Willie's had a dangerous job. He's been the pastor of a local church in Dunedin. Uh, dangerous, dangerous job. A lot of crazy people down there. Some of the elders are amongst us. Like this, you know, it's a dangerous job. But I was a primary school teacher. I kid you not, I actually was a primary school teacher. And sometimes on the same day, you'd have to break up a fight. You know, someone's gone crazy with a broken ruler. It's a dangerous weapon. And then the very, you know, two minutes later, you have to hand out differentiated worksheets to five different ability groups. 
You get a paper cut on every finger. It's a dangerous job. I don't know why you're laughing about paper cuts. Yeah, it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. So I don't get, I don't get scared public speaking because I've done dangerous jobs. And the most dangerous aspect of teaching is, is teaching physical education. Now, as a primary school teacher, you can't really be a PE teacher, but you can swap. Right? So through various swap exchanges with other classroom teachers, I ended up teaching a very balanced curriculum of PE and silent reading. Right? PE, much more dangerous than silent reading, right? PE, you have to get out and about, right? It's raining or it's sunny, things can happen, you're outside, there are children involved. And you think, what's the most dangerous thing, maybe playing rugby? No, because all the kids are small, you're not going to get hurt, right? Yeah, yeah, nah. But the, actually, the most dangerous thing is athletics, not the running, because you can get a kid to demonstrate that, there's no reason to hurt yourself. <laughs> but the most dangerous thing is obviously the throwing of heavy implements, Right? For real, for real. I was teaching at Mount Roskill Grammar School and we were wheeling out a shopping trolley. I was wheeling a shopping trolley full of discuses. This guy, this guy, discuses. Someone help me out, message me on Facebook. One of those, I was pushing a shopping trolley full of discuses and then another kid formed too, he's bigger than me, so he's pushing a shopping trolley full of javelins, right? <laughs> and as we were wheeling out, two things crossed my mind. First thing, where did the school get the shopping trolleys? And is that right? Like proudly supplied by Woolworths, you know, like we're pushing it. The second thing that crossed my mind is that if we're going to throw these things, me and the 38 students in my class, I'm going to need some sort of safety plan. So I came up with the plan as we were wheeling out to the backfield there. I thought, first of all, let's do it in the backfield away from the buildings um, so that if anything goes wrong, no other adults saw. <laughs> right? So I can, can craft my own story carefully. Uh, and then what I did was I lined the students up in groups of 10. So line of 10 there, and we're going to throw the things that way. And then so we're going to throw them that way. So we're going to put all the other, you know, the non-throwing participants waiting for their turn. They can go over there, right? Seems straightforward, right? But the, the, the issue is that of the two, surprisingly, the disc is far more dangerous than the javelin. You'd think the javelin, because it's pointy, but javelin's been phased out through most schools. Most javelin's throwing is really just a vortex that whistles a soft little American football. <laughs> and if we were, if we were to have a conversation about the degradation of the New Zealand education system, we could start there, right? There's a serious problem in that whole decision, right? But the, the reality is that we had real javelins, and the thing about the javelins is 90% of the time the javelins went in that general direction, right? But inexplicably, 10% of the time they went that way. Right, so there was a few near misses before we moved the group of non-throwing participants sort of to the 45 degrees rather than the 90, just for the sake of the 10% of people who couldn't do that way. Uh, just sort of somehow, I don't know, there might be people in the room who, who have experienced this. They've been that kid. <laughs> right, well, I'm not going to ask you to identify yourself now, but we will pray for you at the end of the service, right? Um. The discus, though, because the throwing action seems simple enough, but it's actually far more complex. Watch this. This like going from that to this opens up just an in like seriously, it opens up the possibilities for direction immeasurably. Like it literally, the, or any discus of the ten people throwing could go in any direction. Right? Literally any direction, right? And, and the, the, the throwing of the discus, not only is it dangerous, there's something about it that I think is so true 
in life, right? It's when you throw a discus, you don't aim to at where you expect the discus to land. Right? Same with the javelin. But when you throw a discus, you're not aiming your intent at where the discus lands. So for instance, if I was to throw a discus from here, let's imagine, I, no, not, no, I haven't done it for a long time. Let's imagine I can throw it and I can land it like here, right? Not any further because I don't want to do the stairs. Right, so let's say the discus lands here, right? Because I've thrown things before, like who's thrown a thing? Like you've thrown enough things, you know, when you pick up a thing of a certain weight, it feels like, oh, a thing. That's a thing about this heavy. So when I throw it, I know it's going to land about that far away from me between there and there, right? It's going to land a distance away from me. A lighter thing, you sort of feel like you can throw it further and a heavier thing is going to be a bit, you know. But if I, was to, if I know it's going to land about where that corner of the stage over there is and when I throw the discus, if I aim where I think it's going to land, where the discus actually lands here. Because one of the things you might not be aware of is, gra- is gravity. And... I was explaining in Timaru, gravity's quite helpful. I was thinking of some examples. The only one that springs to mind is that when you're hanging out washing, it allows the clothes to just hang down, right? It just looks a bit more tidy, right? There's, maybe, there's other things gravity's helpful for, digestion, a few things like that. But the, the reality is when you throw a discus, you have your aim and your intent but your aim and your intent are, exist in an environment which is affected by downward force. At every point in the trajectory of the discus, there's downward force being exerted. So as the force you put into the discus slowly wanes, it's overtaken by the downward force of gravity and the discus will eventually, even for Andrew Naismith, a man among men, eventually the discus that he throws will hit the grass. There's never yet in the history of sports been a discus thrown that hasn't landed. Apart, despite what you saw in Asterix and the 12 tasks, there's not been a thing thrown that didn't land because always a human force, your force that you put into the thing you throw is affected by forces bigger than you that drag it down. I want to suggest to you that in all of your life, when you aim, don't aim where you think you will land. There's two things we do wrong. Number one is when the discus hits the grass, we draw a target around it and pretend that that's what we were aiming at. Oh no, I really wanted to marry a moron. That's really what I was aiming at. (laughs) Don't aim. so, so, So number one, don't aim to go out with a moron. Number two, when you find yourself going out with a moron, don't pretend that's what you want. Too late. You just have to, you just have to go with it, right? God's the redeemer of all things. We'll fin- at the end of the service, we'll pray for you, Matt. But <laughs> maybe a little overtired. They um. No, do you get what I'm saying? Oh no, I I really wanted this job. Oh no, I, I really want to have my my spiritual life to be this dumb. I really want to be this bored. I really want to be this angry. I really want to be bitter. This is, the, this is what I was aiming at. No, the discus has hit the ground. Pick it up. Pick it up. Oh, I wanted to be sick. 
No, you didn't. You have to deal with it, but you don't have to accept it. Don't pretend it's your target. The other thing we do wrong is because we've thrown a discus before, we actually aim at the thing we're aiming at. So <coughs> my daughter's played football for the first time this year, both of them. One is seven and one is 15. At seven, our oldest daughter convinced us that ballet was a team sport, so she won't be playing soccer. It's now called football. But at 15, she's decided she's playing football with her friends at high school, right? Awesome. And so she tried out in the trials. Now, her friends were awesome football players, and in the previous year, they had been in the A team. In year 10, they were in the A team. But they found the A team a little demanding. They had to train twice a week. They had to work hard in the games, and the coach was a bit shouty, right? So what these smart girls did is they aimed in the trials, they aimed to get into the B team, which meant, of course, that they found themselves in the C team. Because when you aim for B, you always get C. When you aim for A, you don't always get A. But unless you aim for A, you'll get something less than you could have got. Always, right? In my family, we had a saying that uh, around school certificate, if you don't understand school certificate, I haven't got time to explain it to you. The, um, <laughs> but school certificate was based on getting 50% was the goal, right? To get 50% as, as, across three or four subjects was, was school certificate and you were finished. You could go and do something intelligent now with your time instead of wasting time at school. And so in our family, we had a, uh, a saying that, uh, that 51% represented a 1% wasted effort. <laughs> this wasn't a saying accepted by all of the adults in the family, but all of the cousins and some uncles were firm adherents. <laughs> that the 51 is a 1% wasted effort. The problem with aiming for 50 was that on a large number of my subjects, I managed to score scores like 13, <laughs> which didn't allow me to then move on to the next chapter of my life. It, it meant that I could carry on with the same chapter again next year. Now, the reality is in our life, if we keep aiming for where we think it's going to land just to save the disappointment, we end up not getting the thing we could have got in God. There's two characters in the Bible that, that help, uh, help me understand this, because when you're aiming, when you're aiming in life, so you're aiming in your career, you're aiming in your relationships, you're aiming in your parenting, you're aiming at something. If you don't feel like you have vision, it's because you're aiming at the grass. If you aim at the grass, you'll hit the grass. If you aim at the stars, you'll still hit the grass, but it'll be further away. But I can't help you about the whole hitting the grass thing. Right? Until this world finishes and we're in a different one that doesn't have gravity. I know the washing's going to be terrible, but the reality is we don't, we don't live in a world that allows us to set the trajectory. We can aim and then we deal with the consequences. And then we aim, but we always aim beyond the earth. We, when you throw a discus, you are literally aiming at the stars. And when you think about the things you're engaged with in your life, your career, relationships, parenting, your spiritual walk, the, the effort you put into local church, we've got to be aiming above the grass, above the macrocarpa hedge at the back of the field, above the hills in the distance. We've literally got to be aiming at the stars beyond the here and now to what God has called us to. Okay, just, just put your hand up like that if that makes sense because we don't, can't go forward until we've got at least 50% of the people understanding where we're at. Brilliant. 
Okay, so if you could throw up my PowerPoint, which I think I'm halfway through so far. Uh, there's a slide that's got, a, it's got two great big circles in the names of a couple of people. There's two characters in the Bible, which there are people like, PowerPoint? What's PowerPoint? Here we go. Oh, nice fade in the back there. Okay. Hmm. Okay, what you can't read on the sign says this. Saul. Okay, anyway, I'll leave that to you. There's two characters in the Bible that represent this idea, I think, perfectly. Uh, and the King David and King Saul. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know these two characters. They're, they're, they're significant characters in the formation of kingdom. Right? Saul was the first king of Israel, and then David was the second king of Israel, and it was actually chosen to replace Saul, right? And because of Saul's failure, David was chosen. And they, they, they capture something, these two guys. Part of the power of these two characters in the, is that they're in, they're in perfect, perfect proximity in the Bible, and they represent something powerful because they're almost, almost exactly the same characters, both these two people were chosen by God. They were specifically chosen by God. Called by God. They are specifically called by God. Specifically chosen for a particular purpose in time and space. It was the time for something to happen in the whole nation and God chooses them. Exactly the same way as you are chosen. You're called. The call of God is not like your mum saying, dinner's ready. It's not, it's not like you don't hear it. This is how you know you're called by God. If at any time in the past or future you exist, then you have been called by God. So if there's anything about you that is real in the real world, you actually exist, either physically or emotionally, there's something that can be defined as you, then you, that thing called you, your body, your brain, your intelligence, your emotions, that thing called you is called by God. Acts chapter 17, Paul's talking to the Athenians. He says like this, God determines the boundaries of our habitation, who will rise and who would fall. He decides when and where and who and, and how you are born. The psalmist says that, he, that God knits us together in our mother's womb. Sounds really awkward, needle, knitting needles. And... But from the strand, come on, from the strands of your ancestry, God knits together this thing that's you. It's a pretty complex process, more complex than any other actual nursing. God draws history together. From all of history, He draws it in together and then a little baby gets born in a place at a time to a parents, in a family. You were born in the 1980s or 70s or let's not, or the 2000s, let's not go too far back, right? You were born in a time and a place specifically chosen by God. You're chosen by God. As long as you still exist, you're still chosen. Right? As long as, as long as you exist, you're chosen, right? Number two, these two guys were both anointed. So anointing is about the grace of God and the power of God coming upon a person. So every person who's ever existed has been called and chosen. And every person who ever exists has access now to the anointing of God. These two were anointed in their generations, just the two of them. But the Bible says that all of us have access to the anointing power of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God that can touch us and fill us, right? The, the stories are amazing. So, so, so Saul is out looking for donkeys. He's just off, out and about, looking for his father's donkeys that are lost. So he comes up, and, and, and Samuel, 
The Bible's full of these awesome stories. So Samuel wakes up in the morning and he's got this feeling like someone's going to come looking for donkeys. Now, you know when you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, someone's going to knock on the door looking for donkeys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it happens a lot. You wake up, think, hmm, that's a donkey sort of, you know, it's a don- you know, just those days that are donkey sort of days. You think, I think it's going to be donkeys they're after today. But then again, it just turns out someone from Vodafone again, right? <laughs> But Samuel's, Samuel's waking up, you know, he's reading the newspaper, he's in his tent and there's someone knocking on the door or, you know, I'm looking for donkeys and uh, Samuel comes out, you know, what are you looking for, donkeys? Oh, what do they look like? You know, oh, grey, big ears. Oh, no, I haven't seen them. But anyway, Saul says, I'm looking for donkeys and Samuel gets a jar of olive oil, sloshes it on his head. This would be good next time Vodafone come along. <laughs> Knocking on the door, just bust out some canola, splash it on them, you know. <laughs> hey, you're chosen by the Lord. Yeah, the reality is, <laughs> these two guys, David gets anointed by Samuel in this crazy circumstance as well. David's out, David's out looking after sheep. I always think this, I always think this, you know, if human beings, if we're like the pinnacle of animal world, how dumb are animals? Like really, how dumb are animals? Like if your brother-in-law is a human being, how dumb's a donkey or a sheep, right? So these guys are doing dumb things. They're just doing, it's just dumb. What's Saul doing? He's just out looking for donkeys, just doing a thing. Just a thing. Oh, I don't like my job. What's, yeah, it's probably not as bad as wandering around looking for donkeys. <laughs> just do your thing. Because God anoints you when you're out doing a thing. I'm out looking after sheep, so I'm out looking for donkeys. Oh, I'm teaching little eight-year-old snot rags. But the reality is if you're just doing your thing, like raising your kids and doing your job, God anoints you in that space for the thing He called you to. These guys were called, they were anointed, they were both extremely successful. Saul was able to push the, the enemies of the kingdom back so that for the first time since Joshua, Israel had their own territory again. And then David Push that even further. David's first military exercise was to kill a giant with a stone and his sweatshirt, you know, sweatshirt with a tennis ball in it, took him out, right? Just like, it's a pretty good start, you know? From there, he just continued, like he was a hero. People sung songs about both these guys. They were famous, they were exceptional, and they were both extreme failures, much like some of us in the room. <laughs> Just like them, you're a failure, but you've been chosen by God, anointed by God. You know how to find success, but you still fail. Let's have a look at these couple of stories. Is that all right? So should we have a look at the Bible? Because we've got quite a long way into the sermon. Uh, so the, the next one says, don't worry, here's one I prepared earlier <laughs> that I can read. Uh, sorry, I've, I didn't think. Uh, that red would be the easiest color to read, but okay, somewhere. Look, this is what old people look like using technology. Samuel said, <laughs> Samuel said, What have you done? It's a good opening statement. This is Samuel addressing. So, what have you done? Uh, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and you didn't come when you told me you're going to come, and the Philistines had. Mustered at McMarsh, I said, Now the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gagal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. I forced myself, and I offered the sacrifice that I knew I shouldn't have done. 
You know how some, how many times have you ever found yourself doing that? Yeah, you forced yourself to do a terrible thing. You know you should have left some of the chocolate cake for your friend, but you forced yourself. I forced myself to eat the whole thing. <laughs> like, this guy's a liar. I forced myself to do something stupid. You never, you've never forced, you only forced yourself to do the right thing. If you want to do something stupid, just go and see what happens. Right? I forced myself and offered the sacrifice. Samuel said, you're a fool. You didn't keep the command of the Lord that he commanded you. If you had, check this out, the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord sought out a man after his own heart. God's taking the forever thing out of your life and He's looking for someone who's going to connect the here and now with the forever. Right? You have not kept what the Lord commanded. You jump to the next slide. This is a couple of chapters later. And Samuel says to Saul, this is, this is later on, Saul basically does the same thing again. Slightly technical again. The first story, he offered a sacrifice that he shouldn't have. In this story, he killed some people and not some other people, but he should have killed those people and not these people. So it was like, I'll be like, oh, you know, God, people got killed. You know, like maybe not the right ones, but people, you know, we still got close, 50%, you know. And Saul said, Samuel says, Saul, I'm not hanging out with you anymore. And Saul says, so, so, sorry, Samuel says, I'm not going to return with you for you rejected the Word of God. The Lord's rejected you from being king of Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul grabs him and Samuel says, the Lord's torn the kingdom of Israel from you. So the kingdom's been torn off you and he's going to give it to your neighbour who is better than you and the glory of Israel will not lie or regret because God's not going to be upset. God doesn't get upset. He does, make, just makes decisions, right? And then... Then check out what Saul says. When, when Samuel says, I'm taking away this eternal kingdom, and then again, he says, I'm, that God's going to rip the kingdom from your hands. This is what Saul says. He says, yeah, I've sinned. Yeah, yeah, fair, fair, you know, yeah, 49, not quite right. Uh, and then he says, but honour me now in front of the elders of my people and return with me to the party, like it's a big feast. So God says to Saul, I'm taking this eternal promise away. And Saul says, okay, okay, Samuel, but can you come with me to the party so that I don't look silly? Uh, so then David, his, his exceptional favour is non-trivial. Saul's failure is one is he got the sacrifice wrong. The next thing he got some instructions wrong based on being fearful, right? Uh, what? David did is David was out spying on the neighbor while she's having a bath. Then he seduces the neighbor and gets her pregnant. Then he tries to trick the neighbor's husband who's away at the time into thinking that it's his baby. That doesn't work. So he arranges for the husband to be murdered. Okay, so this is not a 49% type of effort. This is a scenario where David's dropped the discus on his foot. <laughs> or, or, or he's done that one. Right? It's, this has gone wrong. As wrong as anything, right? If you want to read all the stories, the worst stories of the wrongest things happening, the Bible is a really wonderful book to read about how terrible you too could be if given the right circumstances. <laughs> right? You know when someone does something bad and someone else says, I can't believe they did that. I'm always like, mm. I, I can believe it. 
I've thought of some pretty bad ideas myself. But the reality is, when someone does something stupid, we all should just be like, whoo, that's how stupid people look. I'm one of those. <laughs> that looks really bad, what's happening. I'm not, I don't want to do that, right? Anyway, God comes to, the only person who finds out is God. David manages to cover up the whole thing because he's clever, covers up the whole thing. And have a look at this next slide in 2 Samuel. This is sort of 30 years after the Saul one. (laughs) Nathan says to David, you're the person, right? I made you the king of Israel. I delivered you from your enemies. I gave you your master's house, weapons, army, war, uh, uh, wives. I made you the king of Israel and Judah. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough, I would have given you way more. Then you've decided, by my word, you struck down Uriah, you took his wife to be your wife, and you killed Uriah with the sword of the Ammonites. Right? So God confronts David with a sin. And then God says this, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me, you've taken the wife of Uriah to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you. You know when the Bible says, find a promise, this is not the one you're after. <laughs> find a promise in the Bible. This is, this is a promise in the Bible. God's raising up evil against this guy. I'm gonna raise up evil against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your own eyes and give them to your neighbour and he will be with your wives in the sight of the sun. So God promises David this. I'm gonna raise up from your own house, it turns out to be his son, who will bring war against you, a civil war is gonna break out. And his son ends up sleeping with all of David's far too many wives in the public view. This is quite a humiliating scenario. Right, what did Saul say? Oh, if you take that from me, at least make me feel okay now. What does God do to David? He crushes him in the here and now. This is among the worst judgments in the Bible <laughs> of the things that God says to people. I'm gonna do this. Like God does do things like burning whole cities, right? But this is pretty full on because this is quite personal. And then what does David do? David repents and then he writes a psalm calling out to God. And what does he say? He says to God, create in me a clean heart. And he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Do you know what he doesn't pray? Please don't do all these bad things to me, God. He says, no, crush me in here and now if you need to, but don't take this eternal vision. See, David knew the discus hit the grass, but he said, I just, I, the discus is in the grass. And what did Saul say? I know the discus is in the grass, but let's pretend that it's not. David said, let's not pretend that the discus is still flying, but let's get it up in the air again. Come on, we've got to be people who can hit the grass, deal with the disappointment, pick it up again and say, God, I know that you've called me to more than that. I know you've called me beyond here and now. We've got to be people who are prepared to aim further than we know we'll land, then walk to where it land and pick it up again. The mistakes we make are we pretend that that's what we wanted in the first place or we don't aim high because we don't like the disappointment. Why did we used to aim for 50%? 
Because to aim for an A and get a B hurts more than to aim for a C and get a D. I don't know why it hurts more, but it does. To aim for an A is what God's calling us to. We've got, do you know what we need to aim for? Eternity. What's our goal at Cooper's Church? Everyone in Dunedin gets to know Jesus. Oh, that will never happen. I know it will never happen. It's not going to happen. Of course it's not going to happen. We'll be dead. Some of you might, some of you younger. I'll be dead. Right, but what does Hebrews say? Hebrews says that the heroes of faith welcome in the promises of God from far, though they don't obtain it. They call it in from afar. They're still reaching at it. That's why Abraham could be 100 and still be reaching forward. That's why, we, that's why John could be in the Isle of Patmos and still be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, right? Because they're reaching beyond. They're not wrapped up in here and now only. Their feet are in the here and now, but their eyes and their expectation are into eternity. See, if your expectation is not, if, you don't, if you're not thinking we're here to reach all of Dunedin, you won't reach the person next door. Because it's our big dream that drives our little steps. Right? Amen? Okay, let's, let's look at these two slides. This is what Saul did. Saul was happy to give up eternity for personal honour and social comfort in time and space. Oh, not that we were doing that, of course. Uh, it's a challenging thought when you bring it into just the psychology of what Saul did. Oh, as long as it works here and now, I'll forget about the big idea. But David was prepared to be crushed in the here and now. The crushing consequences of his sin. Was it God's fault? He was just, no, it wasn't really God's fault, was it? David's just like, it's not God's fault, it's David's fault. <laughs> But he begged earnestly for the restoration of his, his eternal purpose and the salvation of God. Amen? Yeah, this is, how Jesus, this is how Jesus put it. Have a look at this. Do not be anxious. There's a good commandment. Don't be anxious. <gasps> now I'm worried about being anxious, right? <laughs> I'm really anxious about the fact that God said not to be anxious. Now, yeah, Jesus is tricky like that, right? So... Everyone talks about Jesus being a real nice teacher. Most of what he said is impossible. Have you noticed this? Read the Sermon on the Mount. Impossible. Love your neighbor as yourself. Impossible. Entirely impossible. Why? Because you can't do it without the grace of God. That's the whole point. That's why Jesus just came and said, hey, these are all the things you must do. They're all impossible. Now I'll die and then you'll be able to do it, right? That's probably a little simplistic. These are the things Jesus said, don't worry about. Don't worry and think, what will I eat? Okay. Of all the things that you probably need to start worrying about, this will be an issue within a few days. <laughs> right. So Jesus left out all of the things you might quibble about and went straight to, okay, don't worry about what you'll eat. Ooh. What about this one? Don't worry about what you'll drink. And he's not thinking, well, will I go with a pinot or a chardonnay? He's thinking, this is a desert. And he's saying, don't worry in the desert. If you're in the desert, don't worry that you've got no water. Do you know what I've found in my very limited experience in the desert is the number one thing to worry about is whether you have water. 
What Jesus is saying here is, of the most important things that you must worry about, do not worry. Okay, is this making sense for anyone? It's not making sense for me, but I'll go with what you're thinking, right? Oh, here's another one that you should never be anxious about. Never be anxious about what you'll wear. Well, I don't know about this. This is the principal anxiety. This is the dream we've all had, isn't it? Walking through the high school corridors and you suddenly realize you only forgot one thing in the morning and it was to put your clothes on, right? This is the principal anxiety. These are the, these are the things we are critically anxious of. And Jesus is saying, look, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, He's not saying don't worry that you're naked. Please all wear clothes all of the time except when showering or just wear togs in the shower, right? What he's saying here is don't worry about not having what you need in the circumstance that you're in. Don't worry about not having it. Don't worry about going to war without weapons. Don't worry about going into the housing market without enough money for a deposit. Don't worry about starting a building project without enough money for doing it. Don't worry about talking to your friend about the grace of God without any of the right words to say. Don't worry about it. Don't worry that when you throw the discus, it won't go far enough. Don't be anxious about it. Just throw it. Just throw, just aim as high as you can and see where it goes, right? Right, because that's what, that's what people who don't know God worry about. Your Father knows everything that you need, but seek first the kingdom of God. When we aim at all the worries, we're aiming at the grass. We've got to aim beyond them and all the other things get taken care of. Do you know what we've found? Is that when, what I've found is that when you talk to the person who you don't know how to talk and you don't know how to talk to them, do you know what you will find? Is that you will have the words to say. Do you know what I've found? I've, I've never bought a house with enough money to buy a house. Yeah, you just have to go and buy one and somehow get it done. Have you noticed this? You can't run a business with enough capital. I've never spoken to a single business owner who has enough capital. They've all need more. But then they have to go into their business life just acting like they've got enough. Every pastor who gets up to preach pretends they've done enough preparation. The worst of it is say, come on, let's praise God. And then you're all like, and then they just pretend that they're having fun. <laughs> right? Dave's done a lot of worship leading. <laughs> Why? And then what happens? And then they do. Do you know what you have to do to be a good parent? You have to imagine that you are one even though you aren't. Right? Stay away from people who, who look like they are. Just find people. No. <laughs> you just have to do it, don't you? Right? You just have to aim and do it. Right? Then let's pray. Is that all right? Uh, uh, maybe close your eyes, bow your heads. Oh, you don't have to, but if you don't, I'll be looking at you and it'll be like, it'll like it's just the two of us making eye contact. It'll be spooky for me. It'll be spooky for you. So maybe close your eyes, bow your heads. And I just want you, you know, the, 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 the thing where the, this whole idea is make, actually makes sense in your spirit or in yourself. 
But the thing that's going to stop you tonight, you're going to be like, you're going to go out of here and the Holy Spirit's giving you vision. And the thing that stops you tomorrow or the next day and, or begins to water it down is that all of your experience is about aiming high and landing low. Because that's, that's what life, that's life. You know, the, the diet plan you start on Monday will hit the grass on Wednesday, right? That's been our life, right? But the, the, I, I think because of how life is and because of how human beings are, I think as we go through life, we end up picking up unnecessary, an unnecessary weight of disappointment. You know, I, I know this is true of parents because we have these high expectations for our kids and, and that, that creates a pressure for us. And, and, and we underperform our own expectation on a daily basis and a weight, a heaviness builds up in our spirit. It can be the same at school. You keep trying at school, but school's specifically designed to make you feel stupid and it always works, right? And this weight of disappointment comes on us. And you think you get overwhelmed in moments where it needs, moments that require you to rise up with courage. You're overwhelmed by like sandbags of disappointment that just rest on your spirit. And for a bunch of people right now, that description that I've just given you, it sort of feels like your Monday mornings or your Wednesday mornings, that like sandbags of disappointment. And I just feel like the Holy Spirit in the next minute just wants to like cut holes in the bags and just, and I can just see, when I think about this moment and this sermon, I can just see pictures of sand, a picture of like sand running through your fingers. That as you open your hands it allows the Holy Spirit to just blow away some of the disappointments that you've been holding on to. So, so if you want to respond right now, just, just as you're sitting there, just open your hands. Just stretch your fingers out. We hope you enjoyed this message recorded at Equippers Church, Dunedin. We pray it blessed you. For more information, please visit equipperschurch.com.